Come along now The sky is endless now We are limitless We are limitless now Come along now Welcome, I'm Jessica Fine, and this is the I Don't Know How You Do It podcast, where we talk to people whose lives seem unimaginable from the outside and dive into how they're able to do things that look undoable. I'm so glad you're joining me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to the show. My guest today, Catherine Shields, writes about parenting, disabilities, and self-discovery. In her debut memoir, The Shape of Normal, a memoir of motherhood, disability, and embracing a different kind of perfect. She explores the truths and lies parents tell themselves. What stood out for me was Kathy's honesty and vulnerability. She does not hold back. The mother of a now adult with cognitive disabilities, Kathy was influenced by the era she grew up in during the mid-1950s. Her role models were depicted on TV shows with the ideal family of mom, dad, and two perfectly normal kids. That's what she expected when she became a parent. But when her life didn't match up to those images, she felt like a failure and ultimately discovered she had deep-seated ableism. She writes about the complex emotions that came into play when her daughter didn't fit the perfect mold she'd anticipated. The Shape of Normal was named a category winner in the 2023 American Writing Awards, and Kathy's writing has been nominated twice for a pushcart. Her essays have been published in NBC Today, Newsweek, Grown and Flown, Mother Magazine, and many more. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Kathy Shields. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jessica. Let's start off. First of all, excellent taste in names. Your daughter is named Jessica, and I'd love to start off by hearing about Jessica. My daughter is now 40. She is cognitively delayed. When we first learned about her diagnosis, it was that she had cerebral palsy when she was two. Cerebral palsy doesn't always accompany cognitive disability. It can affect different parts of the brain. By the time she was five, when she was ready to go into kindergarten, they gave her another IQ test that was much more involved and accurate. And I learned that it was beyond just, oh, a little bit of delay. It was a lot of delay. It was, you're never going to be normal. Ever. And the hard truth was so hard. I was like angry and I pushed against it. And I said, I'm going to get her all this therapy because that's who I am. I'm the kind of mother that I'm going to just fix all this, fix it. And it took a lot of years to actually understand that I was the one who had to accept it and I had to fix me and not her. Well, it's so interesting that you use the term normal. And your book, in fact, is called The Shape of Normal. What is The Shape of Normal? What do you mean with that title? When I was thinking about titles, I was thinking about the graph that the neuropsychologist shows me, who said, this is where normal is on the bar graph. And as it goes up in the middle is where your normal is. To the right is highly intelligent. And to the left is lower intelligence. And he goes, she's over here, way over here on the left. And I couldn't imagine that that was real. We can push it up. You can climb up the graph. You can climb up this, you know, this hump. And that's how I felt is why I was going to just rise up on this like side of this mountain and get her up to the top. I relate to that so profoundly, this idea that, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to fix it. I mean, I definitely felt that way with my daughter's diagnosis. 
I think as moms or as parents, we feel like, okay, I just need to work really, really hard and I'm going to be able to quote unquote, make this right. How did you move through that? Because you write that you were actually in denial. So it wasn't even, okay, this is what she has and I'm going to fix it. At first you were like, no, this is not what's happening. How did you progress through? She happened to have a twin sister that helped or that hurt. So I could compare. And I also had an older daughter who I could also compare. What did she do at two years old or three years old? So it was a little hard to keep convincing myself that I could change it. But I didn't want to let go of that belief. It was heartbreaking because then I'd have to accept that we're not going to have the outcome I wanted. And I, I couldn't face that. So I continued to take her to the therapies. I joined groups of moms who had children with similar issues or challenges, talked to them. It was a very gradual process. Maybe it took me a lot longer than some of the rest of them because I'm hardwired like that. Like, no, I totally sure. get it. So how long did it take you? Like roughly, you know, she was two when she got that initial diagnosis. And you talk, in fact, and write about how it took you a long time to get from denial to acceptance. And what was so interesting is those two words, right? It made me think you had this grieving process, right? And how long did it take you to move through? Years. I mean, okay, that's what it took me. I mean, everybody's different and everybody reacts to this kind of situation differently. Some people embrace it and go, okay, this is great. This is what God has given me. I didn't feel that way. I felt it reflected on me too. Somehow she wasn't the ideal, perfect little child. And I had always aspired to that because my mother was kind of critical. So I was like, this isn't going to work. I have to make her be like everybody else. And yet I love her so much. It just was really a challenge. And the interesting thing is she was a really cute little girl. So when the neuropsychologist first said, and he used these words, I'm quoting, profoundly retarded. When he said that, he said, parents usually come in here and can't accept it because their children are so beautiful and adorable. And your child is very, very cute with the blue eyes and the blonde hair. She was really cute. And her disability, her speech was garbled, but it wasn't terrible. She kind of fit in. She could play with the other kids. She wasn't antisocial and she was a little clumsy, but she could walk and she could move. So it was easy to say, well, this works and this works and I will fit all these pieces together and, and convince myself that this is just going to be fine because I'm going to keep working at it. So it did take a number of years. I guess I gradually accepted it because I had to. It was day-to-day life. Even though I continued to, you know, push her and take her to therapies, it was inevitable that I'd have to see that. And I think she was around 12 or 13 when I realized this is as far as we're going to get, you know. And then I think her speech therapist said, this is as far as we're going to get. She said that too. And I trusted her. And so I had a lot of people I trusted. I gave up, gave up the fight. And how did that feel when you gave up the fight? Did it feel freeing? In a way, it was freeing because... Now I don't have to put that pressure on her or on me, but it was also, I this is what you have to accept. And sometimes accepting things is hard. It hurts. If somebody passes away and dies, you can't bring them back. I mean, what are you going to do? You have to live with it. And, you know, I tell people I'm still living the story <laughs> because she's still with me. She's done much, much more than was ever predicted. She works in an ice cream store and she uses her cell phone and calls me every day. And she's got a lot of things she can do. So I focus on what she can do and not what she can't. She can't read. She can't write. 
Well, it's interesting because you were mentioning she's such a beautiful person physically. And I wonder if that made things a bit more challenging in that people had certain expectations. She has an invisible disability. How does that play out? I have a scene in my book where we're in McDonald's and she's having a fit about something and throwing herself on the floor and acting the way she acts when she was upset and somebody coming and chastising me. And my other daughter's like, tell them what's wrong with her. She's got a disability. And I was uh, embarrassed. It was, uh, it embarrassed me. She was so cute. But as soon as she opened her mouth, you'd hear how she spoke and you could tell, oh, she sounds a little different. She is a little different. I often wanted to hide. I was embarrassed, but I wasn't like, I'm proud. And yeah, it was kind of like an invisible disability because she was so cute. I often felt judged. And I think I was judging myself mm-hmm. more, more than the world that was judging me. It was really my perceptions. You also write about the lies we tell ourselves as parents. It sounds like, you know, some of these lies were, I can fix her, or it's not quite, quote unquote, as bad as they say. What other lies were you telling yourself? Well, mostly that she would recover. <laughs> That's a key word. She'd recover from this. Now, you don't recover from brain damage, but I had never experienced anything like this. So what, what did I know? And when she was diagnosed late 1980s, they didn't have things like Google it, figure it out. I was kind of beside myself and I had to trust the teachers that I was sending her to school with and they would advise me and they would talk to me. But I just struggled. So you you start off with denial. It's many, many years before you get to acceptance. (laughs) When you did move to acceptance, did things change for Jessica? Jessica's always been a very happy kid. So no matter what I did, she's just gone along, very even keeled. I was trying to do more things to help her become more independent. So when she was around 17 or 18, I tried to let her stay home alone because I'm thinking, oh, she's starting to achieve this. She can use a phone. I figured out she couldn't dial all seven numbers, but she could hit star and then a number. So I taught her, oh, just hit star nine. That was how we programmed the phone and it worked. She was doing it fine. And I thought, this is great. She's getting independent. We can do this. She can stay home alone. And then one day she called 911 and police came. There's a whole scene about that in my book. What was that like for you? Did you end up trying to leave her home alone again? Or were you like, that's it? No, that's it. That's when I recognized I am really trying to push her and to push my reality on both of us. And this is not going to work. This is not something she can do. She didn't know answer the door or answer the phone when the 911 operator called back. And as much as I try to explain all these things, just like I tried to teach her how to read, I had her tutored for years, but it just didn't stick. It wasn't going to stick because she didn't have that ability to keep that information. So I knew she couldn't do this. And I knew that this is where we're headed. And that's when I started thinking about now what's the future going to look like? Her sisters are gone off and gone to college. Uh, One of them, I think, got married at that point. Everyone is marching on with their lives. What's going to happen? So I had to really start wondering, what am I going to do? And a lot of people who have children like Jessica, who are at best stage of 18, 19, 20, they're looking around wondering, what are they going to do? Are they going to have to take care of them the rest of their lives? And one of the friends said, oh, I'm never going to die. I can't die. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. You have everybody. It's not a good plan. <laughs> yeah. So 
that was hard. I had to figure out what to do. I'm interested in the fact that you said you felt that you had these kind of expectations from your own parents who were critical. And you also write about these kind of like picture-perfect families that you were seeing on TV and that you really had expected, right? And so I wonder, first of all, how much of our expectation is created by these external factors and why that's so important that we start to see different realities on TV, in the movies, in all of these places. But how did you reconcile this like picture-perfect idea in your head ultimately with what the reality was? I grew older and my perceptions changed. And I started to understand that my fantasy, and I like to fantasize, that was my favorite thing to do is make up stories, but it wasn't matching what was in front of me. And I had to basically embrace what was right in front of me. Like, okay, this is what I've got. And this is great. I have a wonderful life. I have my children, my husband, I'm still married after 48 years. I started to appreciate everything I had and what she brought to me and how much she had taught me. During those years, I was teaching preschool and kindergarten, and I became more and more patient. And all the kids seemed to really gravitate toward me, probably because she had she influenced me. I don't know if I would have been that kind of person had I not had a daughter like this, had I not had these experiences. So I'm really grateful to her now. I mean, I couldn't say that then. And I couldn't say any of this then because I was kind of still angry and resisting all of it. Well, what would you say if you could go back? What would you say to yourself? I would try to love myself more, open up and realize how really good I was. I had a skewered idea of what kind of person I was, who I was. I was never like good enough. And I think I would say, it's okay. You're evolving into this wonderful person. And this experience is really helping you. Don't worry. I would tell that person, don't worry. It's going to be good. I wonder if she would listen. Sometimes I feel like, oh, perspective that we have now in our situations, right? And what if I had been able to, you know, hear from me back then? I think I would have been like, oh, shush, I'm busy trying to fix things over here, you know? Yeah, I probably wouldn't have listened because, you know, I had lots of people saying, my child is an angel. It's perfect. Everything's wonderful. And I would scoff at that. Like, they really think that. They don't really think that. Yeah. <laughs> but they yeah. would say that and I would kind of argue in my head, how can they think that? How did Jessica's siblings, especially the twin, react and respond to her? Were they protective? Were they annoyed? Were they jealous of the attention presumably she was getting from you? What, how did they handle it? They took their cues from me a little bit. So if I was uncomfortable or embarrassed, they seemed to be too. I played with her when she was little. They were sweeter, but it started to gradually branch off like a tree splitting from the trunk. So it's sort of like they went in this direction, she went in that direction. I didn't send Jessica to the same schools because I thought she needed more attention. I thought she'd be lost in the crowd if she was mainstream. And as they got older, like seven, eight, then it really started to change. And her twin sister, she wouldn't really talk about Jessica very much. And the friends, she sort of like kept her apart from everyone else. You know, one of the things I really appreciate in all of your writing and, and in the way you talk about it is your honesty, right? You're not saying, oh, it was all per picture perfect by any means. And in fact, you even describe yourself as having had deep-seated ableism. Oh, yeah. That's probably where it came from that I wanted her to be, let's fix this and let's make this all good. I think it had to do with 
the way I was raised, and I was raised by a mother and father. They were both children of Russian immigrants. They were quiet and silent and critical. They were hard. I never thought I was doing anything that well or that right. I didn't want to be like that, but I think it was instilled in me. And as I started to recognize this is how I feel, this is how I'm looking at everyone else that has a difference, I recognized that oh, that's who I was. I decided to be aware of it, whether it's still there or not. I'm not sure. Maybe a, a, a bit of it is, but I'm, I just try to be aware of it, acknowledge it, and then change. How do you think we can move beyond, as individuals and as a society, this idea of ableism? Because it is, as you say, deep-seated. It is widespread. How do we move forward past that? I think in the media, we should have more people with disabilities or differences showing up and everybody getting used to seeing that, getting used to seeing people in wheelchairs, people with facial disfigurations, people with, you know, whatever kind of physical disabilities. We should see more of that and, and they should be out in the world. Jessica goes to this program called the WOW Center. And they have this little logo, and it says, we are more alike than different. I love that quote. We're all human, and that we need to see different variations of being human. And we have to acknowledge that we do feel that way. We need to recognize it in order to change it. Accepting the way we look at things first, the awareness is the first key, and then saying, now I can change it, and I will change it, vowing to change it. Well, again, it's so brave of you. How do you think sharing stories like yours can help change the narrative? Well, the more we expose the rest of the world, the more we expose them to the different ways we can be human and the different variations, then we're bringing awareness, aren't we? And bringing acceptance slowly. I can't say that that's going to work, but that's my hope. How did your relationship evolve with Jessica as she got older, as you realized this is as far, quote, as we're going to get, how did your relationship change with her? I started to appreciate her more. The gifts she brought me, what she taught me, the unconscious way she taught me to be more patient and to listen. And she forced me in a way to go look inside and explore the way I felt. So I appreciate her what would you say to a parent who came to you having just received a diagnosis like that and who came to you and said, I don't think I can do it. I don't know how you do it. What three pieces of advice would you give them? I'd first tell them to join groups of like-minded moms who have children who have been diagnosed. The group mentality helps. Having that support helps. I think that's the first thing. Find out everything you can about whatever the diagnosis is, what kinds of things you could do to help improve the outcome and don't give up. What kind of response have you received from people who have read the book? Great to hear from mothers who have children with disabilities, mothers who just have children, because motherhood is a challenge in itself. So people appreciated my honesty and the way I approached telling the story. That book poured out of me because of the pain and all the grief that I went through to, to get here. And so I had to write about it. It was like crucial. That's why it's so honest and heartfelt. Once you had it all down on paper, once you got it all out, did you feel lighter? Yeah, I felt like, oh, maybe this is going to go somewhere. Maybe I'm going to actually publish this. It started out as like 50 pages uh, as I wrote it after school. Oh, Jessica did this today or she did that today. Somebody was staring at us at the store and making comments. And so I would write all these little episodes that happened. 
when I started gathering more and more stories, I was like, this could be a book. And I wasn't afraid of being honest about everything. I was like, why not? I grew up in the 60s. So it was sort of like Vietnam era and hippies and people were like Woodstock. Okay. That kind of attitude of, well, I'm free. I approached writing it in the same way. How did your husband and Jessica siblings feel about you putting the story out there? Well, I asked them, is it okay if I write about you? And do you want me to change your name? I asked them over and over. And I think they're very proud of me. Jessica calls it our book. She oh, said, I love that. Our book. And she's right. It's our book. Well, congratulations. What a huge, huge accomplishment. And I think people are responding to your openness about this. This is hard, you know, and I think that so many people just kind of have this Pollyanna affect about them. And for you to say not only this is hard, but to say that it really made you question yourself and do some soul searching and figure out how you could evolve is a really brave thing to put out there. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Here are my takeaways from the conversation with Kathy. Number one, finding other people who are going through something similar makes a huge difference, whether you're struggling or trying to reach some kind of goal. Number two, when our life doesn't go as we'd envisioned, there's a grieving process. You are not being disloyal to anybody by admitting that as you recalibrate your vision. Number three, we always do better when we focus on what people can do rather than what they can't. Number four, Sometimes we think we need to fix other people when the person we need to fix is ourselves. Awareness is the first step to changing your perceptions. Number five, increased visibility promotes understanding and acceptance. Number six, your child's diagnosis is not a reflection on you as a parent. And number seven, there's huge power in sharing honestly in terms of helping other people with their own self-reflection. If you are enjoying this show, it would be so helpful if you could follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is how you'll never miss an episode. To follow, all you need to do is go to Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening. Go to the I Don't Know How You Do It show page and click the plus sign in the upper right corner or click on follow. While you're there, I'd be so grateful if you'd rate and review the show. That's the best way to ensure that the show grows. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. I've got the whole at my fingertips I feel like flying, I feel infinite I know that we're the kind to think along to other lines But we'll be fine Come along now, the sky is endless now We are limitless now come along now the sky is endless now we are limitless we are limitless now the sky is calling calling out to me some new beginnings with endless possibilities are you with me
fingertips. I feel like flying. I feel infinite. I know that we're the kind to think along some other lines, but we'll be far. 